Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Will M&A pick up in 2024? Will this year mark the return of IPOs? Listen to Strategic Alternatives, a podcast from RBC Capital Markets to get fresh insights on the trends and market forces impacting deal flow across sectors and find out how companies and investors are preparing for a potential surge in deal activity and what signals to watch for this year. Listen and subscribe to Strategic Alternatives, the RBC Capital Markets podcast today wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, welcome to the On The Tape podcast. Guy Adami, Dan Nathan, Danny Moses, back from Miami Beach, Florida. It was a great trip. iConnections Conference. I thought last year was good. Whoa, Nelly. That's Keith Jackson, <laughs> we saw by the way. There, yeah. uh, this year was, uh, what did the kids say? It was fire. Straight fire. Off the chain or something. I don't even know what fire that means. Fire emoji. They took down the entire Fountain Blue Hotel. By the way, I encourage folks to go down there just to see the lobby in the foyer because there must be 30 pictures of Frank Sinatra and his crew back in the day. I could have spent four hours looking at those pictures. Quite frankly, I probably did in aggregate. But it was a great conference. By the way, on the other side of the break, yeah. Danny Moses, Steve Eisman, Vincent Daniel, and Porter Collins were on stage at iConnections, interviewed by the great Melissa Lee. That will be... The B block, the B side, if it were. Stick around for that. That was that was that was. And Danny, we got to talk a little bit about some of your impressions. This is the first time I think your crew from the Big Short were together easily on stage. You also were on CBC's Fast Money on Tuesday. We'll put that clip in the show notes because there was some pretty classic (laughs) stuff that I don't think has been said on CBC's Fast Money um, in a very long time. What was that like getting your crew together? Maybe give a quick recap about how you guys made it into Michael Lewis's book, The Big Short, that became Adam McKay's phenomenal movie, The Big Short. And why has it been so long that you guys have been together on stage? Keep in mind that Meredith Whitney and Vincent worked for Steve as his analyst back in, you know, 96, 97, 98 timeframe. That's when I started at Oppenheimer on the sales desk. And so Steve was the analyst and Vinnie Meredith worked for him. And that was subprime auto crisis number one in 1998. So we'd seen an iteration together. Fast forward, us all working together at 
one point in 2006, we stayed in touch with Meredith, obviously, through that time period. And during the financial crisis, Mike Lewis was looking for people to talk to. He reached out to Meredith Whitney and he said, who should I talk to? And she goes, well, I have the team that you should talk to about what's going on. That's We got connected to Michael Lewis through Meredith Whitney. So two degrees of separation there. After Front Point kind of dissolved in 2011, Vinnie Porter and I went to Seawolf Capital. Steve started his macro fund, Emrys. We did that for five years or so, the first iteration of Seawolf, and Steve did Emrys. And then Steve ended up at Newburger Berman. And now, funny enough, now focuses on kind of a long-only portfolio. So while he certainly taught the skills, has the skills to short everything and anything that he wants to, he's geared himself towards being long. And that was the kind of the funny part of the conference was how relaxed he was. But, you know, Vinny and Porter have been basically managing Seawolf now for several years as a family office. And so they've been back involved in the markets. But what's interesting about this conference, and everybody's used to hearing us talk about financials, is that Steve was talking about infrastructure and Vinny and Porter were talking about energy. And so there are a lot of other things to kind of focus on. We can get into all of that. But yeah, that was the first time physically the four of us have been all together. I mean, it had to be 10 years. We've seen well, each other one-offs separately, but so, uh, yeah. It was no, it was must-watch. Yeah. That conference room, which was a large room at the Fountain Standing Blue. Standing room. Standing room only. Yeah. They call that SRO. And that was, there were many of the panels that had large audiences. I'll put your guys up there against anyone. So stick around for that because it was worth the price of admission, number one. Number two, Danny Moses. I'm going to take you back to 1984. I was either a sophomore or a junior in college-ish, depending on you know when that 1984 mm-hmm. sort of was in the calendar. Sure. But there was an artist that sort of took the world by storm. And I'm not going to ask you to guess what's in my head, like an O's Perlman type of thing. But what I'll tell you is, if you read her name, you wouldn't pronounce it the way it's spelled. Now- Sade, spelled S-A-D-E, one of our hits, Smooth Operator, because Ron Biscardi is one smooth operator. I mean, what he and his team were able to pull off down there is nothing short of miraculous when you think of all the moving parts. But then the other smooth operator this week came in the form of Jerome Powell, who gets there and does a little smooth operator stuff. So I'm thinking the title of this podcast is, in fact, Markets and Their Smooth Operators. But Danny, talk to me about sort of Ron and what you learned from that. And then let's dovetail into the Fed and what you gleaned from that. He's a smooth operator. I I love Sade. Couple of takeaways from the conference. My highlight was the David Zervos, Mike Wilson panel that our own EY from SoFi hosted, mm-hmm. I must say. Zervos walks in the day before the Fed. I don't know what out, what outfit that was exactly, but the hat was a crown with a P on it. And he wanted to explain that that was for Jerome Powell, who is the king and the king of the soft landing, the king Fed has your back. And remember, Zervos did work at the Fed, I think in the late 2000s. Uh, so he had some experience there. But the takeaway from that was that the Fed has your back, that no matter what happens, you have to believe that you know, QT is going to come to an end here in March, that if there's a commercial real estate problem, which we can talk about, they're going to solve it. If there's a TALF, if they need to do TALF 2.0, they'll do it. They have your back. And that was kind of the theme. And Mike Wilson was there. And I'll tell you, Mike Wilson made a great point. Mike Wilson said, you know, when you think about the markets, you got to think of public equities, which is what you can really trade in privates. Point he made, which I hadn't really thought about, is how much the private capital has dried up. And so if you want to talk about those in aggregate, and not to be bearish or bullish, You talk about the lack of capital, how many companies are going out of business daily as a result of not getting access to private capital. I thought that was an interesting point because we can all talk about private capital marks in general, kind of what those look like. So that was a big takeaway there. And, you know, some of the other presentations, Barry Sternlich, 
mentioned right before this, we had the CRE news by four different companies basically come out that he thought you could have 1.2 trillion in losses in the office property market, which is a $3 trillion market. And again, these are things that have been delayed and pushed out and they're now front and center again. So those are kind of my big takeaways from the conference. But when I go to these things, I have to bob and weave because there are people from my every walk of life that I've had on Wall Street. Some you want to see, some you don't want to see, but it was a great time with you guys. Well, you were obviously a rock star down there. By the way, go to our YouTube channel, the Risk Reversal YouTube channel, because we have the Zervos Wilson panel moderated by EY from SoFi on that. It was excellent, Dan, Nathan. This is a great time to plug all of that stuff. You and I did a market call with Jim Chanos. That was a great conversation. His insights were awesome. I did a panel on stage with Alexis Ohanian of 776. That is a VC firm. He's also one of the founders of Reddit. And Rick Heitzman, our good friend, the founder CEO of First Mark Capital. Guy and I were also on a panel with Jason Calacanis from the All In podcast and our good friend Ted Seides Mm -hmm. of Capital Allocators. We talked about the business of podcasting and investing and the like. So we got a ton of stuff on there. So be sure to check all of it out and follow that page. No doubt. They're very digestible. Listen, you go to these conferences, a lot of people think these things are complete boondoggles. They're not. You can learn a lot if you just talk to people sit on these panels and listen and pay attention, the cheapest thing you can do, Dan, Nathan. Yeah, I mean, listen, you know, we talk about that that term sentiment all the time in markets. And so it's not too often, Danny, and you made the point about like what you make yourself do when you go to these things. I mean, what was interesting is that there were over 4,000 people from all over the world there, from across all different asset classes, right, with a focus on alternatives too. But everyone has this backdrop of the interest rate environment, both here and, and, and the kind of divergences between other regions and then how money is being moved around into different asset classes and of course the stock market right and so we had a couple great guests on fast money mm-hmm. we had drew mcknight one of the ceos of fortress we were talking about private credit we had blythe masters who's also in alternatives we had crypto conversations so just to gauge how people are thinking about the existing environment how geeked up they are about it how bearish they might be in spite of what's going on i thought it was amazing i mean my my one takeaway, though, Danny, and I think Porter and Vinny made this point on the panel, and definitely you're going to want to listen to what they have to say about it. It seems that people are pretty excited about the existing investment environment, Danny, which seems to be almost at odds as the way people came into last year, 2023. I think they're excited because the irony is that, and I think Vinny said this on Fast Money, that people are too complacent. So that creates opportunity yeah. on both sides. And I think the area that Benning Porter focus in on their kind of long portfolio or kind of names that are off the beaten track, value names that don't get a lot of eyes on it. So if you're lazy in this market and want to just go with the flow and and you're not worried about it, you're not going to even focus and do the work on those names because you're just going to go by the big names that are working and have comfort. The flip side of that is you're also not doing any bottom work potentially in shorts because, quote, shorts don't work, you know, mm-hmm. but there have been and continues to be stocks that get drilled on a daily basis that if you were doing your work and you were able to kind of project or figure out, you know, what costs we're going to start coming up, whether it's credit or labor on some of these companies, UPS, you know, things that have gotten hit here, you can do well in. And so I think the complacency is not just about being bullish. I think it's about just being lazy and figuring you can make money right now in this market. And what happened the day before the market got hammered yesterday, which was the largest drop since September, the bull bear index was the highest Mm -hmm. divergence it'd been, I think, on record. So again, Watching sentiment, feeling sentiment in there, that's not to say we're going to have a massive sell-off. You're right, Dan. People are looking for an excuse, and they're kind of ignoring 
the elephant in the room now in commercial real estate that will be with us for a long time and maybe just packaged into some small banks and, and regionals and stuff well, like that. Well, so. I love elephants in rooms, so I'll bring that one up right now. We saw on Wednesday of this week, New York Community Bank cascade lower on the back of what apparently is New York Community Bank specific. I'm not convinced that's the case. I think in this instance it is, but that's not to say that other banks don't have similar loans out there that at some point are going to sort of manifest their way into the stock market as well. But as you mentioned earlier, you know, Barry Sternlich talked about that on his panel happened this week. You see what appears to be, again, sort of idiosyncratic to New York Community Bank. However, it was dragging down, obviously, the KRE and other things, Danny Moses. It's amazing how, I mean, this started in, I guess, March of last year is when we started to hear about Silicon (laughs) Valley Bank. So less than a year later, some of the same type of issues are manifesting. So, but Danny, and and I guess this is a question for you. Um, You know, when you think about what was the reason that the Fed and the Treasury and everyone had to come in and backstop deposits and like it was a run on these banks, there was a lot of companies that would have gone under, right? Silicon Valley in particular, there was a particular concentration between the banks that ultimately got backstopped or went under or placed in the arms of somebody else. These smaller now community banks, yeah, they have some bad loans, right? But they're not going to have the sort of systemic risk that might have happened if hundreds or thousands of startup companies that had all of their capital and all the VCs that had all of their capital in SVB and the like. You know what I mean? So I'm just curious, does it make sense to kind of differentiate a little bit? I'm not saying that it's contained. I'm I'm just saying that it looks very different. Yeah, it's a great point. So in, in the case of New York Community Bank, before they bought Signature Bank, and let's keep in mind, they bought a bunch of those assets, and that's part of the problem here. They're really focused in multifamily and in New York City. And with the rent control issues in New York City, they were already under the microscope mm-hmm. for how they were going to do this. Because if the cost to finance went up and they were unable to raise the rents, so you guys can do the math. So that was an issue with them from the beginning. Buying the signature bank and bringing it in, there was two bad loans here that they're talking about. So it is company specific. It is loan specific. We saw that out of Blackstone as well, kind of a loan specific thing that happened. So that's okay. I think the way they handled it was horrendous. I think the fact that everyone knew when they acquired Signature, they made an acquisition prior to that as well, that they would exceed $100 billion in assets. That comes with more restrictions, more compliance things that they have to do. Why would you wait till now to come out all of a sudden? I think so. I think it took people off guard. They cut their dividend massively. That obviously gets hit. So I'm not saying it's a buying opportunity by any means, but it did bring back kind of post-traumatic stress from last March. That was one. The other things that have happened was at Azora Bank in Japan, right, which is not a huge bank. I think it's equivalent of a $2 billion market cap. It's the 16th largest bank there, though. I'll take its second most heavily shorted name on, on the Nikkei, just by, you know, it's down, lock limit down 20% on losses of $200 million, another reserve of $200 million on U.S. office properties. Julius Baer, which is a private bank in Switzerland, ousted the chief executive based upon a $700 million write-down in Australia, and Deutsche Bank increased their loan loss provision fivefold in CRE. So these are things that are happening. Are they all those siloed a little bit? Sure. But it brings back to the forefront the issues. And just know that the Fed has been sending out letters to these smaller banks that you've never heard of continuously since last year. So they're watching certain banks. So I think it will fuel more M&A, not necessarily for New York Community Bank, but in general. But I think if you're a small bank right now, you also realize you're having board meetings right now to talk about some of your exposures and making sure you're buttoned up for yeah, sure. Yeah, no, look, M&A might absolutely happen, but they might also be in the form of take-unders, not take-overs, as they say back in, in, in the day. So we'll see how that plays itself out. But I think one of the reasons as we sit here today on Thursday into Apple earnings tonight that we saw 10-year yields go from 
420 almost over the last week or so, down to 381, which is, again, a staggering move, Danny Moses, is on the back of this and some other things as well. And that yield curve inversion, which I think got down to 14 or so basis points, gets right back north of 30 basis points. I will tell you, Danny, I can't figure out what it all means. Carter Worth has talked about this, and he's been right, by the way, in terms of yields. He thought there was a point where lower yields would actually be deleterious to the broader market. You know, maybe we're starting to see that around the edges. But what does this bond move mean to you, if anything? 1967, guy. 1967. The band Buffalo Springfield. Sure. What was the song? For what it's worth. That's right. There's something happening here. So let's go to the Fed meeting yesterday. And around the Fed meeting was the ADP number. I know we're we're sitting here recording ahead of massive tech earnings in the jobs report. But around the Fed meeting, some bad economic data. And again, today, in terms of jobless mm-hmm. claims and, and challenger job cuts and so forth. So I looked at the Fed fund futures, obviously, before we came on. And yes, of course, March has dropped to near 40% chance. But guess what hasn't dropped? Chances of six cuts just back and loaded at the end of the year. And so he can talk all he wants. And I think the takeaway is that once he starts cutting, he's going to keep going. Mm-hmm. So whether it's March or whether it's May or whenever, it's, that's my takeaway. And to follow through, Guy, to your point about rates, obviously the two-year yields are going to track kind of more of the Fed, but the 10-year yields, what is that saying? What is that telling us, right? It's telling us that people are expecting certainly inflation to cool, but maybe things to slow down. This is not a a bearish or bullish comment. And I think that people obviously got over their skis a little bit. I know you guys had Carter on for a great market call today. And Carter had called this retreat in the 10-year yield. And maybe it's just a trading play at all. But I think when you start seeing the 10-year yields coming in, in conjunction with the market not going up today, obviously the market's rising today and 10 yields are coming in. When you start to see the pairing of lower yields with a lower stock market, I think that's when you have entered the danger zone, potentially, in my opinion. Yeah, and I guess the problem is, Danny, that we have a stock market that's within a percent or so from an all-time high. And, you know, I just mentioned Drew McKnight from Fortress, so the co-CEO there. We also had on with Drew on Fast Money, if you recall, Guy, on mm-hmm. Tuesday afternoon, a gentleman named Armin Panosian, who is the incoming co-CEO mm-hmm. at Oak Tree. So these are two fabulously successful, right, credit funds. And, you know, Armin made this point that they have been in this higher for longer camp, that he was saying this on Tuesday. He did not expect a very dovish Fed. So we asked him, what are the conditions in which, right, the Fed would have to stay higher for longer? But also, what are the conditions in which, Danny, to your point about what the markets are pricing for rate cuts this year? And, you know, I'm just hard pressed to see if we have five or six cuts this this year, it won't be for good reasons, right? And you can make the argument that higher for longer, and this is kind of what Fed Chair Powell was saying yesterday in the Q&A, that you know, there are plenty of good reasons that are keeping them from cutting right now, right? And so I just thought that was a really interesting conversation, and it might be the sort of thing that keeps equities buoyed. I heard Mike Wilson earlier today, I think it was on Bloomberg, highlight the fact that you know we're in an environment where real yields are attractive, right, for the first time Mm -hmm. in a while. So if you're just looking at some of those things about where the 210 spread is, right, and this and that, whatever. So again, I I just think this year,
here is going to be really complicated for those who just think it's about rates and rate cuts, if, if you will, because for some reason, equities are acting in a way, at least the mega caps, that I just can't put my finger on. But to me, that's what I see as the biggest risk, is just this increased concentration in such a small group of stocks. You know, Danny mentioned jobs. And look, the market is predicated on a lot of different things. But I personally, I think, and I've thought this for a while incorrectly, that the unemployment rate was going to start to move dramatically higher. Now, just let me point out that Danny mentioned Peter Bookvar's work and some of the numbers that came out. But just think about anecdotally what we saw. So I'm going to take you back, Danny, to August of last year. And that's when UPS drivers basically agreed with UPS. The average pay was going to be at $170,000 at the end of a five-year deal. And you saw that and good for the drivers, good for UPS. And I remember saying at the time, you know, be careful what you wish for drivers because you know what's going to happen on the back end of that? You're going to start to see layoffs. And that's exactly what we saw earlier this week. And UPS, the stock, has not performed well at all. Now, that is anecdotal, I know, but not really, Dan, because we have seen a swath of different industries over the last year or so announce layoffs. Now, it has not made its way into the unemployment rate. I don't, again, I don't know how all those things are devised. I think a lot of it has to do with government jobs, which have been on the rise in a in a market way, I think, to keep the unemployment rate lower. But in my mind, it's just a matter of time before you start to see that. And when you start to see that, that's going to have ramifications. All right, so that's a great example, and I'm glad you brought the UPS thing. And UPS has not seen an uptick, okay, all week long for the most part, even after all of those job cuts. Here's another one that had a really bad week. This is PayPal, okay? Mm-hmm. So they announced 9% workforce reduction. That's 2,500 jobs. This is a company that has a new CEO and hosted an AI day, okay, last week that fell flat. Okay, here's a company that was supposed to be on the forefront of fintech innovation for years. We know that this stock is down, what, 80-some percent from its 2021 highs. It trades at a perfectly fine multiple. It has you know, a perfectly fine business here. Um, it's got a perfectly fine balance sheet or whatever. And so I, my only point is that you know, when you see those sorts of job cuts and then you see the sort of expected innovation fall flat, the stock was down like 4 or 5% mm-hmm. the day after their big AI innovation day. And so my point is, this might be a trend that we continue to see throughout this year um, if the markets are not going to be rewarding companies who are not able to seize on this technology. They're going to be forced to aggressively cut costs. And obviously, Headcount Danny is the first way to do that. Listen, most of the kind of top six tech names, you know, certainly stocks are doing well, but most of them are cutting jobs. And we've gone into the secular kind of growth story and semiconductors and AI and all that. I get it. But growth companies don't cut a lot of jobs. Now, that not being said, you can cut jobs and become more efficient and certainly dedicate more resources to your technology, not your human resource. But I think the thing we talked about kind of going into this year was going to be labor, not just people getting fired, but labor costs moving up. So if you're going to keep your employees, you're probably paying them more. So it's hit to your margin. And if you're going to lay people off, that's obviously hit to the economy. And certainly you can help companies. So again, every company is very different and you better know what you own. But I think we're going to see this theme. And Listen, there are layoffs being announced every day. And I just mentioned before that on the challenger number that Peter Bookbar was talking about today, I think that there was the highest January job cut. Obviously, it was fins and, and tech, you know, since January 2009, I think, for a month of January. So I think it's wake up time for that. And listen, unemployment, I think tomorrow when it comes out, it's supposed to be 3.8%. I mean, mm-hmm. but directionally is, I think, what we look at. And I want to make one more comment. Think about Powell. Lady was obviously to his transitory call. He obviously wants to make this right. 
let's think about the possibility that when he does finally cut rates, it might be 50 at one point, not 25. Right. Just put that in your head because that would explain how many meetings will be left in the year, yet the forecasts implying six cuts, right? So just think about that. And, and I don't know what, I, I'll be honest with you, at this point, I think most people would say if that were to happen, that would be extraordinarily bullish for the market. And I understand at a very one-dimensional level, that probably makes sense. Other people might say, or the market might actually say, my God, what's going on here? Why are you cutting 50? I mean, what do you see that the rest of us don't see? So we'll see. But in terms of jobs, Dan, before you know, I throw it over to you, I'm telling you, when you have an economy that is predicated on people buying things, 68 to 70% of the economy is driven by consumer spending. Consumers spend when they have jobs and when they feel good about things. I get it. Stock market goes up. People see, you know what? Economy must be great. I'm going to go out and take that trip, buy that Starbucks, all those different things. It feeds on itself. But if that unemployment rate starts ticking up, as it probably should, just given all the things we've seen over the year, people are going to start to take notice. Consumer spending starts to ratchet down, especially now when you're talking about credit card rates on average at 21.47%. Think about that for a second. So again, I'm not trying to sound all dour here. I'm just trying to sort of read the tea leaves. Yeah, you know, there was, and we mentioned this on Market Call earlier, there was a, a note in Axios earlier today, the one big thing, the puzzle keeping the Fed hesitant. And, and again, and I think you make a really good point, the whole idea that, you know, what's been priced in five or six as far as the market and then what the dots are saying in this and that, whatever, there could be a surprise cut of 50 basis points. And then, you know, think, think about the way they were raising at 50, 75 basis points a clip for a while. But this was a really interesting point. It kind of caught my attention. This was America appears to be in the midst of a productivity boom, the likes of which we haven't seen in years. It's allowed inflation to keep coming down alongside rapid growth, solid wage gains, and thriving labor market. But Powell appears to be skeptical that those productivity gains will be sustained, a big risk to what has been so far an economic success story. So I just thought that was a really interesting mm -hmm. framing of the thing that's keeping some folks like us on the sidelines before we're getting going all in on this sort of thing. And the thing that would maybe cause him if we were to see some of those pieces of that Goldilocks puzzle there, guy, oh, to come that. untethered don't a little bit. Um, so, Well, I mean, look, right now, it absolutely has been Goldilocks. I mean, without question, I mean, if you think about all the data we've gotten, the economy is still humming along in the form of GDP. Unemployment is still markedly below that 4% yep. sort of threshold I think people look at. On the flip side of that coin, consumer spending has been good. Consumer sentiment has been very good. The inflation rate is still growing, but obviously growing far less less than it was a year and a half or two years ago. So they're seemingly getting that under control. The stock market obviously loves all this stuff. All the puzzle pieces are falling into place. Of course, there's still so many things to see in terms of what we just spent the last 20 minutes or so to talk about. I am not convinced this entire sort of book is over by any stretch of the imagination. So, Guy, this brings me, and Danny, I've got to get your take on this. Okay, so Carl Quintanilla, we'll, CQ. Put, it in CQ. we'll put it in the show notes here. Um, he tweeted out this morning this quote from Apollo, 89% of U.S. household debt is fixed rate. As a result, the transmission mechanism of monetary policy has been weak. Fed hikes have had a limited impact on the consumer. Now, this is Torsten Slock, and this is something he said on Fast Money with us. Steve Eisman has also said this on Fast Money with us. Danny, talk to us about this, because again, the long and variable lags of, right, of this monetary policy, it has not affected the consumer the way I think you and I and Guy would have thought a year ago. Well, it 
has in one way. So the lower end consumer is getting impacted. That's that you're talking about. I think north of 70% of that's related to mortgages. Another 7% or 8% is auto. But think about the people that don't own homes, the ones you saw Discover's earnings, right? Two weeks ago or so, talk about that's the lower end consumer that's starting to get hit. And so it continues to be a story of the haves and have nots. When Ivy Zellman came on a couple of weeks ago, she made it clear that this cycle is unlike any other because after the global financial crisis and these mortgage products kind of went away, these two and three year arms, most people turned out the most of their mortgage. So the flip side of that, Dan, is they're not getting hit as much as they would be as a homeowner. But the other side of that is when the Fed actually starts to cut, they don't get the benefit of it. So I think historically the knee-jerk reaction, and maybe you get oversold when rates move higher because it doesn't have as much of an impact to your point on consumer spending, and you're not going to get the rebound. But I would hearken again, and I would talk one more just to close out the economic stuff, that the lowering consumer is getting hit. The lowering consumer continues to get hit. And everyone at that conference... Um, even Steve, who's, you know, certainly a little bit more bullish than he had been in the past, is focused on, I'm not concerned unless the unemployment rate moves higher. But let me just say this, the average unemployment rate through history, I think is around five to five and a half percent, right? So we're still sitting down at this 3.8. I'm not saying it's going to get there, but we know how this market overreacts. So you start to get a 4.1 or a 4.3 mm-hmm. or 4.5 direction. We know the crying is going to be, you know, out, out here for the Fed. So Dan, I just think it's a, it's a tale of two consumers in that sense of who's impacted and who's not. But it's a great stat because again, it hasn't been as impactful as you would think it would have been. Well, before we go to big cap tech, I'll say this, the, the way they, they being the Federal Reserve thinks they can control the unemployment rate is the same way they thought they could control the inflation rate, which is to say they can't whatsoever. Obviously, this week has been dominated by big cap tech. We're doing this on Thursday. I want to be clear. So we're not going to talk about Apple in terms of their release, Amazon in terms of their release, because we haven't seen it yet. With that said, Dan, we did hear from a few companies on Tuesday that I thought were really fascinating reports. I'll start it off real quick and say Mm -hmm. AMD, which was a fine quarter, their guidance concerned me a little bit. It concerned me because, A, given their growth trajectory, I thought the guide should have been much better than it was. They actually guided down for revenues. And B, you're talking about a stock that is effectively doubled since their last earnings release. So a lot of good news was obviously anticipated into the quarter. I don't think the market got it. Now, with that said, the stock sold off but not in a meaningful way at all. I'll just say this, because this is going to get you guys all tuned up. I mean, AMD, at least for their fiscal 2024 guidance, I mean, it is back-end loaded here, people. So all the excitement about their GPUs that they're going to be competing with, right, with NVIDIA and all that demand that we believe that's out there for them, it's going to come in the second half of the year. And so to your point, Guy, when you see the sort of guidance that they guide down in the near term, you know, it's not particularly exciting. This year, we're supposed to see 15% revenue growth. NVIDIA gained a trillion dollars in market cap last year, not because they were growing 15%. They were growing some quarters 80%, okay? Like they had the chips, they had the orders, they have the quality, they have the market share, and they were able to navigate all the headwinds that they had about selling into China and the like here. So the AMD story with the stock up nearly 100% in the last five months or so is just not the story of Mm -hmm. NVIDIA in 2023. I mean, like to me at all. And I just want to make one last point on the semis. While Taiwan Semi had a big day and given their guidance that they gave, I think about two weeks ago, Intel did not trade well after their guidance. Qualcomm, a company that I was trying to get my arms around and kind of think about what is the opportunity if we do see handset demand bottoming and maybe reaccelerating down 5% as we speak right now. Some of these like second tier sort of stories that people thought they could kind of pick up, what do they say that? Pick up uh, nickels, nickels uh, on, yeah. the, on the yeah. subway tracks. Yeah, they're, they're kind of getting clipped here a little bit. Well, without question. And again, big cap tech is obviously driving. Whoa, 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 hold on. The other one.
one we got to talk about is Google. Yeah, well, two, I was going to say. Two quarters I in a row, down say. 9% digital ad sales. Okay, that was last quarter. Digital ad sales week this quarter. The stock hasn't seen an uptick in three trading days. So go back to October of last year. I think Google was trading around 140-ish. They reported their quarter. Within a day or two trading days, was trading down to 122 or thereabouts. So you're seeing a very similar type of mm-hmm. response on the back of this quarter. Now, obviously, the stock got back on its horse like everything else, and it rallied in the year end into this earnings release. But that is something absolutely to look at because, again, it's if you think about the medium and small businesses, which probably a lion's share of a lot of this ad spend, you start to connect the dots here and you say, wait a second, maybe things aren't as rosy as they appear. Well, not that. I mean, listen, here's a company that consensus has 61.5% gross margins this year. That's down from nearly 68% mm-hmm. last year. So if they're having headwinds to their digital ads, okay, if their cloud is not growing as fast as people expect because they don't have the Gen AI products in there causing great greater demand and the spend is higher for all the GPUs and the servers and the data centers or whatever, then, you know, we can sit here and say, well, at 21 times, it's a cheap stock relative to some of its peers. Not if those margins are not expected to go up. And I'm looking at consensus for 25 and 26, and their margins are also expected to be below 62%. Danny, if I were your caddy, in other words, if we golfed, I wouldn't golf with you because I don't golf, but I would walk with you. I'd carry your bag and I'm sure there'd be time where you're a little tired, so I would actually get a tee out of my pocket and tee up a ball for you. So that's what I'm going to do right now. We've seen yields move dramatically lower. We've seen the dollar come off on the back of it, but we've no seen gone higher in a very clandestine way. That would be the gold market. And gold has, look, it is really not backed off at all. And we're within, again, earshot of making you know another all-time high. Is gold telling you anything? It certainly is telling me something. Big tell yesterday, Fed meeting for sure. You got what was perceived as hawkish. Gold sold off for a few minutes and then re-accelerated back up. Again, I point to the longer end of the Fed fund futures curve for that reason. As a matter of fact, there's a ceasefire talk in Gaza right now, and the oil prices are obviously getting hit here, and you're seeing a little bit of a market rally. Gold's not selling off. You would think gold would sell off if, if that were to happen. So Yeah, it certainly feels like it's in very strong hands right now, Guy. And so um, I still like it. And I think that's where you're going to want to be, especially if you believe that the Fed's going to start cutting rates. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up energy because obviously you're right. We've seen as we're sitting here, crude oil come off in a pretty meaningful way on the back of what you just highlighted. I think one of the reasons the market is rallying is on the back of that. We'll see how that plays itself out. With that said, I will tell you, Danny, there have been some oil equities that have done extraordinarily well. Sort of these levered names we talk about from time to time, PSX, Marathon Petroleum, MPC, all these stocks are within earshot, if not making all-time highs. And in my opinion, Dan, it's just a matter of time. I know you probably have a counter view, but I think some of these big cap integrated well, names are going to pick up you, as well. You, listen, the names that you've been highlighting, like the PSX and the MPCs, those stocks have acted phenomenally. Now, we've obviously talked about these large integrators. What, there's like $200 billion of, of you know announced deals that I think are kind of keeping those stocks suppressed. But I just highlight this. I mean, the drillers don't act well. You know what I mean? You saw Schlumberger and its response mm-hmm. to its results this week. I just think if crude oil can can't get out of its own way. I just don't think like I'm going to be piling into integrated oil stocks. Dan, your point is absolutely fair. I mean, ExxonMobil, Chevron, ConocoPhillips have not traded well. The news out of Schlumberger or now SLB Corp, not good at all, without question. I'm still here to tell you, I, I get that funny feeling that there's some more chapters mm-hmm. left in this energy story, but we'll see. Gold stories manifesting itself, yields lower, dollar lower, S&P higher, all a lot of things. But when we come back, 
That panel at iConnections, moderated by Melissa Lee, Danny Moses, Steve Eisman, Vincent Daniel, and Porter Collins. Stick around. It's worth the wait. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. In today's hyper-fast markets, it's never been more important to consider every option to raise capital, drive growth, and create value. Stay one step ahead with Strategic Alternatives, a podcast from RBC Capital Markets. In this season, RBC's experts will examine how corporates and investors are evaluating their strategic plans, reassessing their portfolios, and reallocating capital to help them lead today and define tomorrow. Tune in to Strategic Alternatives, the RBC Capital Markets podcast. Welcome everybody. So we are talking backstage. This has never happened before. The big short guys on one panel. So you guys are in for a treat and these guys finish each other's sentences. It is amazing. Um, let's, let's start off, Steve, with, with you. Um, I think everybody wants to know, how much of the movie is, is real? <laughs> uh, a lot. A lot. Okay. Um, yeah, the iconic scene where he goes zero, that happened. Danny was sitting next to me. Uh, the scene at S&P happened, the scene where um, he makes that speech. Bill Miller was the person who, was, who was, I was talking to. Mm-hmm. The funny thing was that at the, at the end of that, at the, after, after that speech, the next speaker was Alan Greenspan. Yeah. Oh. And nobody <laughs> stayed. Everybody left. Of course. We were heckling him, actually. Yeah, we were. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now that that's out of the way, because everybody wants to know that. Um, it's interesting because everybody thinks of you guys as, you know, you guys short, and that's how you made your name. But in reality, Porter, today, you're much more focused on finding value. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, shorting is just another expre- trying to express a trade, right? And so, you know, if you're, you know, these days, post-COVID, when they double the money supply, it's kind of hard to short anything, right? And it's, um, you know, so you got to pick and choose your spots. You know, people have expressed it being long Bitcoin as a, as a short trade or long gold or long S&P. Like, there's different ways to, to, to do it. But yes, sadly, we still always short stocks, but uh, sometimes better than others, so. Danny, um, how has the market changed since 
the days of the big short. I mean, Porter mentioned one extremely big way it's changed. Yeah, so we were together prior to the financial crisis, during financial crisis, and post, and all three were very, very different. And with so much liquidity in the market, as Porter's talking about, you have to respect it. The market structure has changed dramatically. When you have five or six names accounting for 30 to 35 percent, it's not about shorting an indice or being negative on the market. I think it's about finding opportunities, as Porter mentioned, on the long and on the short side. And you can see you have violent moves up, but you have equally violent moves down on certain names. And I think that the majority of money, a lot in this room, can't focus on some of the smaller and mid-cap names, and you can caught off guard. So I think there's opportunities, I guess, for both sides. But the number one thing that has changed to me is market structure um, and index investing and passive has been a major driver. I mean, that's really the big change. And if you think about the three dominant flows in markets, as Danny was saying, um, what happens as a, as a result of that? So liquidity becomes a, a lot more important than fundamentals. Uh, everything gravitates towards the top six. I actually think it's the top 20, 25 names. Uh, in addition to that, if you actually do want an expression opinion that could be volatile, we'll do it in the private space. And gorgeously, if something doesn't go wrong, you just don't mark it, right? So, <laughs> so, so as a result, but it's but, a great business. Uh, it's, it is. It never goes down. The sharp I mean, ratio is just, excellent. Just find a third party to say it's okay. But but for us, we see a tremendous amount of inefficiencies as a result of the, the plumbing and structure dynamic. And there are a lot of names, particularly in value land, which I know is a four-letter word these days, that are tremendous opportunities. Just no one's playing there, and it takes a little bit more time for it to for your views to be expressed. Such as? So, for example, I'll give you a great example. We own one of the largest oil companies in the world called Petrobras. And I could tell you about a year ago, I would mention Petrobras and they would sit and most people, as Porter said, like, I'll express an opinion, chances are you're not going to like it. Uh, Petrobras was up 70% last year and that doesn't include the dividends, right? So there was stuff to do outside in the world of typically where most people play, you just have to do a little bit of additional work and find what they are. Yeah. People talk about you know, the, the emerging markets and they, I think it's you know, 23 years now that the, the S&P has beat it, but <clears throat> when, you, when you sort of drill down there and you, and you look at the emerging markets charts, it's such a you know, different um, country mix and so you gotta really do the analysis and that's, that's how we found Petrobras and we found Brazil and like hey let's do a little bit more work and figuring it out and it's two times earnings you know a lot of cash flow political situation is not as bad they're actually cutting rates and so you, you get into a narrative and a story and that's how you know express that trade in, in something different but big and liquid and you can put a lot of capital to work. Steve, you're really interested in infrastructure. That's the trade that you mentioned a couple of times when you've been on yes. the show the past couple of years. Well, you know, this is a big theme of mine in that the government's going to spend $1.2 trillion over the next 10 years. We haven't had an industrial policy in the United States in any, literally anyone's lifetime. Yeah. Um, there's a lot to do here. And $1.2 trillion is a lot of money. And there's a lot of different areas to, um, to invest in. Danny, where are you investing right now? I know that we're off stage and UPS is collapsing in the back of its earnings, massive layoffs, and you're like, I'm shorted. No, Porter and Vinny are short that. Oh, <laughs> when I need my ideas, I call Porter and Vinny the short side. Long ideas, I'll call Steve. But you know, there's plenty of opportunities. I think we're, we are all, I think, speak for all of us, we're contrarians in terms of yeah. how you try to think about things. And um, energy has been a sector that Porter and Vinny have been on for a long time, and I think it's an underfollowed, under loved sector. And I think when you talk about value stocks, I think there's opportunity there. 
Um, the online gambling world, as you know, I've talked about, I'd like to find secular growth stories and find the best companies within them. And so there's a lot of things which have happened where there are still cyclical things occurring in sectors, but a lot of secular sectors that are out there. And to me, that's the most exciting. So people paint me or us as, as bearish. It's not the case. I think sometimes owning the right stocks and not, on the, not owning the other ones can be a form of you know, expressing a bearish view by owning value or underloved things versus owning the things that everyone else loves. So that's kind of how I view it. I will say this, though, that it's a lot more relaxing being long-oriented than it was when we were doing <laughs> our thing. Because I'll give you an example of my day. So I'd wake up in the morning, I'd turn on CNBC, the futures be up, and I'd start cursing at the television. And my wife would do her absolute level best to ignore me. You could ask her, she's here. And then we'd get to the office, Larry Kudlow would be on television talking about Goldilocks, Porter would throw something at the television, Vinny would curse, Danny would scream, and my blood pressure would go up. Today, I turn on the CNBC, the futures are up, and a feeling of bliss overwhelms me. And I turn to my wife, who no longer ignores me, and I say, would you like to go out for coffee? Sure. It's a different day. This is a lifestyle change for you, A big lifestyle change. With the clothes. With the clothes, <laughs> right? You. right? Look at you. I've never seen Steve so relaxed in my life, honestly, on a day-to-day -day basis of spending the last 24 hours or so. But honestly, it's a different. And it's hard when you're have to, you know, long, short, and have to do it. When you just have to pick the best longs on a relative basis, Obviously, Steve's smart enough to do that. That's, a, that's an easy thing. Not an easy thing not to easy. do. But it, no, not easy. No, it's not an easy thing to do, but it's a more relaxing thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. Say. Sadly, I think Vinny and I are still as angry as ever. Uh, <laughs> skeptical. I, you know, people think you're, you're bearish. Well, I, I'm pretty much skeptical about everything, right? And I, Vinny said it earlier. I can guarantee that anything that I like, everyone in this room hates, and, and vice versa. Like, it's just, I don't know. I but there are different ways to express, express your skepticism, mm -hmm. right? So, for example, Every time something's going to go wrong, the Fed's going to come and bail everyone out. Right. Right. So as a result, don't short a lot. Right. Like, or the only time you can really short a lot is when the Fed does. I apologize for the young people. A Roberto, a Roberto Duran and does no mas, and they cannot save you anymore. And then as a result, you could take your fundamental views that you would like to express as a short and deploy capital. Yeah, but we ain't there yet. But we're not there yet. Exactly. And, there, so, and in the last 20 years, there are only two times really that the Fed. Missed it, right? It was it, the, when they thought subprime was contained, right. they, they had no idea what was going on. And then, <clears throat> you know, in 22, the inflation scare, they were, you know, they just had blinders on, they couldn't see it. And, and in 2022 was a fantastic year to short stocks. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because the Fed was completely, you know, uh, behind the curve. And so when you can catch the Fed flat footed, you know, because they're omnipresent in pretty much all the markets all the time. Where you can catch them flat-footed, that's the opportunity to really press the shorts. And that's, you know, that's, you have to be opportunistic about it. Do you think that we're setting up at all in this regime, in this Fed, you know, regime for another sort of big short opportunity? Does that exist or does that not exist in the system right now? Funny, we were out last night talking about it and, and um, you know, we're, we're going to 6% nominal GDP this year and the Fed's, the Fed fund futures say they're going to cut six times. I mean, like... There, there could be a, another bubble happening in, in they'd have to cut, and inflation would have to resurge. Yes. And then you have a Volcker situation. But I'm saying yeah. the, the bubble could happen if we cut six right. times, that could happen, and, so. and stocks just inflate to the moon, right? But I don't think Powell's going to do that. I think he lives in utter fear of recreating Volcker. Right. And the interesting variable that we all have to think about, it's coming, is the election. We, we know that's an event. Will the Fed be doing different things? 
as a result of the election. And these are variables that, that will come into our heads and minds. Cutting more, cutting less, moving up the cuts? My bias would be move up the cuts. Pull forward. Yes. yes. Yeah. I think the one overriding thing for me is that everyone's ignoring the debt. And maybe it won't matter for a while, $34 trillion in debt and what the interest is on that. And markets are moving based upon Janet Yelling issuing 55, 60 billion less in a quarter and tapping the TGA and all these things and it goes back to the plumbing of the system. So my fear is that everybody's, you know, tilts to one side of the boat and they own the same names and it's all the same momentum factors that are going on and you're caught off guard. I'll never not be that way, but I have to respect the fact of, of what the market's giving you. And you well, got to take what Well, that sounds like what we are in right now. Correct. Yes. So I just, I just think that, think about the two things that happened last year, that everyone was caught off guard. Most people were caught off guard in March, right? Silicon Valley Bank, Silvergate. All of a sudden, oh, I didn't see it coming. Crisis, crisis, crisis. Fed injects $500 billion. Get to the debt ceiling negotiation, right? What negotiation? We'll just postpone until January 2025. We've already added $2 trillion to debt since then. That's fine. There's a lot of money sloshing and you have to respect it, I guess. And so readjusting to that new normal of what it's someday it's going to matter. Is it me this year? Now? I don't know. You could, so. you could make the argument that, you know, rates got to 5% last year and, you know, the Fed pivoted hard. Janet Yellen pivoted that she issuing all bills. And, you know, a month later, uh, Powell's talking about cuts already. I mean, that was a pretty big surprise to Probably the market. simple as unemployment. You just keep it simple. If unemployment starts to go up, we're, we have an issue. But I'm, not worried. <laughs> You're not worried. I'm not worried. I'm worried. You're so, I, I'm very so blissful. zen. It's really... I, I'm just not worried. I mean, uh, with all due respect to Danny, he could be 100% right. This argument about the deficit has been going on for 40 years. I remember Pete Peterson in the 90s was talking about Oye the deficit is what he would say, or at least I would say oye yes, the deficit. Say. That would be yes. my interpretation of what he would say. And so here we are, 40 years later, we're having the same conversation. And the numbers are a lot bigger, and all you need to do is be right once. But 40 years is a long time. So, you know, until I see real signs that there's a problem, this is not a topic that I really particularly But in terms of the crowding and everybody being on one, in one side of the boat, that is happening now in the markets. So and we're seeing that in terms of market structure, big cap tech, et cetera. Does that worry you, or is nothing worrying no, you? No, doesn't worry no, you're out for coffee. I told you so relaxed. So people must be thinking that I'm on drugs, but I'm not. <laughs> it's I, I've just become here. a happy-go-lucky kind of a guy. It's refreshing. It's unbelievable. It's very different than in, we were at a fixed income conference in 2007, <laughs> and Steve was speaking, he goes, I, he was trying to hand out oh, Prozac on the way in for people before he was going to speak. You all need to take something before I speak. You know, <laughs> unbelievable. Look to your left, look to your right. When he's not going to have a job. And the things, you know, depending on your mindset. I he said that. that. Yeah, he said that. I did yeah. say that. There is yeah. something, though, I think, if I, not to take the over here, but I, I you know, I want to go back to 2006 for a second because these guys obviously built their book long short at the time. And when the CDS trade came along, it was just an addition to everything else. But the, I think it's very clear to understand, or want people to understand, to, to short those stocks back then, New Century, accredited, Saxon, the borrows were, if you could get them, were 40%. The implied dividends, even though they weren't going to be paid, were 30%. Right. Our reason to go into that trade, not just as a tool to navigate what was happening, was just a replacement for how expensive the shorts were. And it grew over time. But when we saw what was happening in fixed income, and I think this is going to be clear for this next iteration of the markets. Understanding what's happening in fixed income, I don't care what kind of credit you're looking at, to me is going to be key again. Because as much as people talk about stock picking, I think it's about bond picking and credit. And we are such a financialized economy that I really think that skill set and those fund managers, I think they're going to leave. This is why he doesn't sleep. <laughs> <No>. I know. <laughs> 
Look at him. <laughs> Sweet. So, you, so you're on one end of the spectrum. <laughs> you're on the other. For now. For now. Where are you, Vinny? Who, who is more right? They could both be right. It's really, when, when you, whenever He's you hear an argument. the mediator yes, like he always, always. did. <laughs> whenever you hear an argument that people have, it's usually duration of time differential, yep. right? I, I guarantee you when the crap hits the fan, Steve's gonna change his mind, right? And so as a result, I just hear them and I start laughing. I mean, the debt is an issue. Like, like there's no way it's not, right? The only reason why it's not an issue is because we're printing money and somehow, I mean, look. But how does it come to a head this time as opposed to not coming to a head for the past 40 years? Well, the, no, no yeah, one knows yeah, that. How does it come to an end? We don't, well, we were getting we're close dead. to where it was a problem. And then Janet Yellen says, whoo, I don't need as many coupon bonds as I used to. I'm going to do bills. And we have an election. We better keep rates down low. So the control part of the economy. So. You hear me speaking, and obviously... By the way, this is what the people who own Bitcoin are rooting for. Right, right. Yeah. You, you hear me speaking, you're like, oh, Finney, you're freaking bearish. I'm like, but you express it differently because you know they're not going to let you win until they're forced not to do what they're eventually going to do, which is debase and print it, it, or, 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 or tighten. And then once that you can tighten, then, then, you could, then you could deploy. If you go back to the big short, look, in, in 04, we were just as bearish as Michael Burry was. We just weren't short stocks yet because it, it, was, it, was, it was early. It was early. Yeah. It was right. And, you know, whether lucky or, we, you know, we got the exact right timing in... in for uh, once. For once in, <laughs> in summer of 06. And we put on these, yeah. we, we saw the, 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 the data clearly deteriorating and that's when we put the trade on. So, you know, you, you just kind of have to be patient and have all these, you know, macro themes in the back of your head and you know, you'll know you pull it out of the drawer one time, open up the file and put the trade on. So how do you express this trade, this concern about the debt and how it comes to a head? I look at corporate balance sheets and try to avoid companies that are know are gonna have to come up for some type of refinancing. Look at commercial real estate, and I'm not trying to play it directly necessarily, maybe some of the property reads here, but you gotta start to look at these, You know, again, people are all about immediate, what's right in front of them. And I like to think longer term and then discount it back, so I'm gonna miss a lot of run-ups in certain names that, that Steve will probably get on the long side, and I won't. And, and, but I'm willing to do that because it hasn't really paid in the last few years for the most part, but there's some good stock picking opportunities in 22 to be intellectually curious and to try to, because you'll miss. And in a professional money management world, we see how it works. We see that if you are a long only that's indexed or you know, judged against the S&P 500, you just gotta pick the names you want to overweight versus underweight. But when the chase started last January, you had, to keep, you, had to, you had to go for it. And when it ended in the year, you had to go for it, the timing of that. So I think this year is gonna have a lot of ebbs and flows. And I would say this, if, it's, if that's not such a big deal, then why is Janet Yellen basically running policy at this point in November? It was a big moment, right? Changing the tenor of the issuance. And now she did it again yesterday. So this is a, it's a big deal and they're aware of it. You know, we have, so, I'm not going down into the financial plumbing. Again, I'm overthinking. Steve, what you, you I, taught me what, By the way, by the way. <laughs> no, 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 relax. Yeah, yeah, I, got a, I got a song in my head. This brought back memories. Oh, boy. We actually listened to it last night at dinner. It's like Bobby Ferrin's Don't Worry, Be Happy. Don't Worry, Be Happy. So yeah. when we used to play this in the office, right, Steve loved this song. Yeah. Danny hated the song, <laughs> right? And yet, and me and of course, Porter were just jingling it and dancing around and it's bringing like, you, while he's talking, you're probably <laughs> just By the way, just to get back to Larry Kudlow, it's really true. When he would get on, he would stay Goldilocks. We, we as a group, we would literally go insane. Yeah. Just absolutely insane. Yeah. There was one other song that was very important during 2006, seven and eight that I would sing before Steve would come in. I probably be the first one in because settling, fixing, coming trades, looking, whatever. 
and I would see the market would be up a lot. And my biggest fear, we were all negative, that Steve would come in and want to cover everything just to be nervous. So I would start singing Let It Be by the Beatles, but I would change it to level three. Level. <laughs> so Steve would say, how are we doing? I'm like, that's eh, fine. Down 20 basis points, probably down 52 at that point. Nothing you can do. I'm like, it would just sing level Let's three, see. level three. <laughs> yeah. so, you were ahead of your time. Like, you yeah, just, look at that. You don't mark anything. It's manage, much better. to manage, yeah. so, yeah. Was it a real concern that he would cover too early? No, I'm not joking, but no, it would be, there was a lot of swings that were going yeah. on at the time. And standpoint of you didn't want to get caught up in the emotion and, and sometimes it was my job, not just with Steve, but to filter the stuff from the noise. And if, if Europe's rallying and, and you know, Asia was rallying or maybe we're, we were short those markets, you're coming in kind of behind. But what was really interesting about the CDS trade, as Porter just mentioned, the day we put that trade on in July 2006, sure. the next day, the first marks that we got, unlike Burry, we were already up. I, Steve, I think I can safely say if we had been Burry in 2004, we would have been out of that trade within three No, we would, we would have had the patience. And so it gave us more confidence. So I think it helped us be clear-headed yeah. in terms of having that literally every day. So. so I'm curious, has there been a trade since that you guys individually have felt as much conviction in on the long or the short side? Porter. Porter. I don't know. I mean, the, we, we knew, we were, every single one of us knew it and had zero doubt, and we, we, you know, we were the ones who basically, because <clears throat> we did so much financial services, we picked out every single part of that trade, you know, whether it was the, the money market funds and had, we knew they were going to blow up, or insurance companies, or you know, you know, Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns. Like we, we were over you know, every single part totally. of that trade. I mean, the only thing that, I, that I mean, it's, it's not the same thing. The, my, my infrastructure trade, I think, is, is close, but not of that magnitude. And, and Vincent and I, uh, on a percentage basis, m maybe made more money buying energy in, after energy went negative. In, That's where I thought you were going. Yeah. yeah. So I tried to tee up. I know. But, yeah. but, but, up for that. But still, it's, yeah. it, it, yeah. you know, the, the, the big short trade, which is so much bigger. Agreed. And, and right. we, I mean, and, and lasted longer. And, and we, I mean, you know. But we, we were on an island. We did have a lot of fun, though, making fun of people. We did. We did. Yeah, we Wall really Street did. people. We still do. Wall Street people. Steve, yeah. we right. still do. Well, true, but not, not like that. No, like that. As you were watching the car wreck. Well, I remember the guy, from, the guy who was head of Asapex research at Bear Stearns came in to tell us. I remember he said, you know, he said, housing prices in the United States have never gone down since World War II on a national basis, which happened to have been actually true. And I said, is that like a law of physics, a law of God, or just a coincidence? <laughs> I got feedback later that he, he, he said, that, that meeting didn't go well. He said, I, I, I said, no, 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 don't tell him we really enjoyed it, beating you up. <laughs> I, was, I told the story a couple of days ago where, where uh, Kerry Killinger, uh, the CEO of WAMU, came into our office probably like three months before it failed. Right. And he, he came in and he's like, white as a ghost. Steve goes, Kerry, looks like you need a hug. <laughs> 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 See, we did shorting with the smile. Yeah, exactly. I would say, Mel, though, like from the stuff we learned, there's, there are opportunities today, not harping necessarily on the short side, but when you see tech companies or whether posing as tech companies or just finance companies, that's the stuff you want to look for. Such whether as? Upstart, Affirm, those are, those, are, those are finance companies, period, end of story. And some other names I know that Porter Vinny like, you know, like to look at as well. But those are the opportunities. Can a huge fund manager really do anything in those names on the, on the short side? Maybe not. But those are the things where I at least try to help people 
to not be long them, whether you want to be short them or not, know what you own because that, that's what those are and, and they're nothing else. So those are the opportunities I see that if you do your work granularly, you can, you can make money. Highest conviction trade, Vincent? Right now? Right now. Should always have that ready. I mean, no, no, no. I'm thinking of the Republic. I like a coal name. How about that? Coal. Coal. That is so not politically correct. Oh, I know. That's <laughs> well, you don't want you don't want to you don't want to uh, power your house. You don't want to oh, power your Tesla. I'd you, build, you want to you know build, build your cars <laughs> with metallurgical steel like you, you know. Peabody Energy, BTU. Huh. They're buying back a truckload of stock. Right now, Elliott has been in the name for God knows how long is getting out, and once they do so, trades it two times EV to EBITDA, and I think it could go up 40 to 70%. What? Hmm. Porter, how about you? You know, we were, we were talking last night about um, some commodities and how, you, how the ESG movement and, and the lack of, of capital financing has just allowed not a lot of mining to happen. And one, it's done well, but um, uranium has been a great position for us and, and a, had a big run to, it's now 100. But the, the demand versus su supply is, is one of the most imbalanced things I've ever seen, actually. There's no, there's no supply, and a lot of the supply is coming out of Russia, and, and they have serious <laughs> questions about it. And I think there's going to be a lot of utilities in the United States being scrambling because everyone's short uranium. And so it could go Short meaning there's not enough. There's not yeah. enough. Short pounds, yeah. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. In Europe as well. That's yes, the they're, they're, if Russia and, decides to turn it off. I know, and, and France is really short uh, uranium, and so they they're, they're don't have the pounds available. I mean, mining's hard, right? Getting stuff out of the ground is very, very difficult. Mm -hmm. So. How about you, Danny? I mean, it's, uh, I was on your show a couple months ago. Um, I didn't mention this name specifically, but within the online gambling world, it's 1.3 billion market cap, genius sports. So you, you want to own B2B high margin tech companies within a sector growth story. It's massive, cash flow positive, over 100 million in cash. Um, and they partner with the NFL, they partner with Amazon. I think the end result one day will be Amazon probably takes them. I don't think there's anything imminent there, but I love that. I really think it's a clean, great story to look at. And still on the short side, you know, I, I would call it SEAL Team 6 now. It's no longer the MAG 7 or whatever you want to call it because Tesla, I think, has been out of it. And look at the performance. I mean, Steve will tell you, I'm sure he's long most of the six. He's not long Tesla, I would imagine. Not. You can outperform massively. And I think names like that, they're going to, you are what they thought they were, which is an auto company. So again, can it go back up 10, 20 percent? <coughs> sure, will it be painful? Yes. But I'm willing to stick that out over a period of time. So you know, longer term, I like to think things in longer term. We mentioned the elections briefly. And I'm curious, Vinny. Yeah. Uh, are we ready for it? Are the markets ready for it? Have we priced in a Trump presidency, for instance? Have we accepted that? No, not yet. I, and I think we are delaying the implementation of portfolio strategy. When does that happen? It's going to get real. I don't know when, exactly yeah. when. But it has to get real. We got November. We, the, the date doesn't change. It's going to happen. And if it starts getting real, I actually think of it as more of a sector rotational mm -hmm. dynamic that if Trump becomes president, what would you want to own? Versus well, you wouldn't want to own solar stocks. No. No. no you, you may not want to own them now. You may not want to own them now, too. Given but you hands. sure will want to own be them long if, price, he, if, he, if he if he, if he And you might president. not want to be long, interestingly enough, defense stocks. Really? Why? Well, That's... I mean, the last three, four years, we've had a lot of kinetic conflict, a tremendous amount. Will it be different? 
Can you trust Trump? I think Trump said he could solve Ukraine in three in three hours. Two seconds. Three Done. or two minutes. Whatever. So. <laughs> um, I feel like you're the warrior of the panel, Danny. You know, the yeah. funny thing is, is Adam McKay, the the director of the movie, thought Danny was the optimist of the really? movie. Really? Yes. That upset me. <laughs> and How Vinny goes, upset when you're called Vinny goes, an optimist. Who, want, who wouldn't want to be known as an optimist? So <laughs> if we went down to Orlando to see it, and they were going to allow us to be on... New Orleans. New Orleans, sorry. And they were going to allow us to be in the movie. So Danny went down there, looked good, and he kept doing outtakes and outtakes. And he just kept saying, well, I'm not an optimist, right? And it's about 10 times, 11 times, 15 times. I'm in the back cracking up, right? And they go, why are you laughing? I go, like, of course, who the hell doesn't want to be an optimist? I go, this I guy. I said I was always optimistic about how we were going to do in it. It's actually got cut, obviously. Well, no, <laughs> what Adam nailed about him is he was our social chair, right? So he would scurry us along, get us to where we needed to go with our smiles and everything else, and that's what Adam clung on to. Yeah. So, yeah. so that's sadly, Danny didn't get the best actor to... Uh, I blame my mother for my worry gene. But yeah, I like to see what's, you know, what's, what's what? out there. What, what can you see? And that hasn't you know, been the, the most relaxing thing or the most fruitful thing to do because everyone's right in front of them, what's right in front of them. So. Unfortunately, we're out of time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Dan, Vinny, Steve, Porter, the Big Short panel. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.